Olivia Lomonette-Gill is a fine artist, printmaker and children's book illustrator. She describes herself as an untaught artist and accidental illustrator. With a background in theatre design, her book illustration conveys appealing for theatre, capturing the drama in plot, setting, gesture and expression. She's illustrated two books for Michael Moore Pergo, a collection of poems titled Where My Wellies Take Me, and Muck and Magic, a story about sculptor and printmaker Elizabeth Frink. She's also illustrated J.K. Rowling's Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Olivia's latest project is the illustration of Jessie Burton's Medusa. This retelling for young adults imagines the story from Medusa's point of view. A teenager subjected to the will of jealous, solipsistic gods. She must choose between the destiny that's written in the stars or rewriting the future and becoming the author of her own destiny. Olivia joined me from her home in Brittany and I was interested to find out more about her background. I think since my school days, I'd been weirdly serious about, first of all, drawing the habit of carrying a small sketchbook around and any opportunity of being at a bus stop or in a music practice, using that time to observe and draw. And I think the idea of that observation has stayed with me till today. So even that comes into the book very much. You've got the characters that are in the story, which I felt very much obliged to go and find real life models for. And um, I'm just not very good at making things up out of my head. I was very lucky as well to have parents who let me do non-recommended subjects like art. (laughs) And my mother, who was a professional musician, she was always encouraging. And then by the time I got to university age, I'd already done quite a bit of serious drawing. I'd done a lot of volunteer work for theatre companies. All my school holidays were spent sleeping on people's floors in London, trying to work for different companies, Uh, spent a few years after my degree, you know, working in theatre, which was fantastic, but increasingly found myself retreating into a studio space. Well, we're going to talk in a moment a little bit more about uh, some of the detail in the illustration, but I feel I need to know a little bit more about you as a printmaker too, because you then went on to, it's etching that you do, isn't it? Well, um, again, I'm, in case there's any really good printmakers listening in, I'm a little bit hesitant to talk about my practice as a printmaker because I seem to sort of merge it with other things. And um, I tend to stick with etching and dry point, which are intaglio methods, uh, so the opposite of relief printing. And I work on metal. And again, this came about by sort of chance that I got to do an MA in printmaking while I was still based in London this was because, again, from my teenage years, I had a fascination with printmaking, and I'm not quite sure why, but the lithographs of Daumier and uh, the etchings of Goya, yeah, I always just felt fascinated by them. And I found out sort of latterly that I had a, a great-aunt or a great-great-aunt who was a fantastic printmaker. She spent her whole life working as an artist, and I've now got all her etching plates, which are just <sighs> fantastic. But they're just seeing the draftsmanship that she was capable of and so when I got sort of offered the chance, I wanted to do an evening class in etching. So I got to Wimbledon School of Art and they said, oh, why don't you do an MA? And I wasn't really planning on doing an MA ever, but I started there. 
ended up defecting to Camberwell. And I'd obviously never done foundation. I'd never done a BA. I'd never done any of the things that you're meant to have done. And I finished my Master of Arts just. And I also worked at Artichoke Print Workshop for quite a bit. And then since then, well, I left London and I had quite a few years working without a printing press. And so then I'd started working on metal, basically using printmaking techniques to make paintings. Tell us a little bit about that. It's usually copper, could be zinc or it could be aluminium. And for the etching, it's a chemical process where you're basically using an acid or an alkali solution to do the, the hard work for you. So often you'll heat up your plate, you'll roll on a very thin ground of a waxy resist, uh, which you can then do your line drawing or create your image exposing the copper, which is therefore not too much hard work because you're not having to physically gouge the metal yourself. And then you're putting it into your either alkali or acid solution, uh, and then you're letting it happen. It's a bit like cooking, I suppose. You hopefully arrive at your perfectly etched plate, which you're then inking up and printing. And then what I tend to do is incorporate collage. You're sandwiching all the layers together with this massive pressure of the printing press. So you come out with, I don't know how to describe it, it's called chine collet, if you're being fancy about it. This is a kind of Chinese collage where the etching is printed on top of several layers of coloured paper or collage. And that's how I work quite a lot. It sounds time-consuming. And if you do something that you're not happy with, that sounds like an awful lot of work to go back and start again. It is, um, although you can't ever start again because the the plate's too expensive. So you've got to make work what you've done. (laughs) And I suppose what I like about it is that the constraints open up all sorts of possibilities that you might never have encountered or thought of otherwise. Let's move to the book now. And I'm really interested to know when you, I mean, it's a remarkable story. It's beautifully told, it has to be said. And then there's this wonderful conversation between Medusa and Perseus, neither of them knowing what the other's backstory is. And gradually this backstory, they have a contract between themselves to tell each other the truth. It is a remarkable book. And I wondered when you first received the manuscript, what was it that you responded to in the text? And what ideas were going through your head about how you were going to approach this as an illustration project? Every time I do a project, I've got no idea how to do it and how it's going to turn out. And I think um, my, my first realisation with this was that there are not many illustrated books, I think, for young adults, if I'm right in saying. So my main concern was how do we make this look like and feel like a book that is for young adults, not for young children. Uh, The story is very, very contemporary. It's very apposite. It's very much for older young people. And yet as soon as you put pictures in a book, it can start to look like a young children's book. So... I think all of us involved, uh, me and Bloomsbury, and particularly obviously working closely with the art director, Stephanie Amster, that was something that was very much in the forefront of my mind from the beginning, that this should not look like a children's book. I I suppose I envisaged it probably in in 
mostly monochrome because I work mostly in black and white as a printmaker. Although now I'm looking at it and there's actually lots of colour in the book. But I know Stephanie quite rightly wanted lots of colours of the Mediterranean in the book. But my warning lights sort or of flashing my head was the well, the more lovely bright colours there are, the more turquoise and more this and more that, the more it is going to start looking like a children's book. Anyway, of course, there's lots of ways of using colour without it having to look like a children's book. So I, we were going backwards and forwards quite a bit at the beginning. Stephanie had done some layouts which blocked out areas for illustrations, which were quite small, often in and there was full page spreads, but there was also quite a few small vignette type details here and there. And I started trying to fit my initial ideas, drawing onto those layouts, but I was finding it hard to... I think because of the power of Jesse's writing and the kind of grown-up nature of the characters in this book, where although both of them are, well, they're not that young, but they're sort of adolescent but teenagers, um, they've both experienced a huge amount, which make them quite, quite worldly wise in a way. And I suppose I felt that all of the characters needed to be as full size as possible, really, you know, as... as uh, lifelike as possible so to fit even the dogs or even other details into a corner of a page was difficult and so there was this toing and froing backwards and forwards and it was like the book was negotiated all along the two years it was made and that there was a lot of changes from the initial layouts to what it now looks like and now we look at it and it I think it's turned up Pretty nice. <laughs> yes, it's absolutely wonderful. Can I just ask, did Jesse have any commentary on your artwork as you were going through or was that kept completely separate? I think I'm right in saying that all of the work quite rightly went to Jesse and was approved. And uh, she actually very kindly wrote an email not long ago, which I found very touching indeed because she said how happy she was with the work. And just a thank you is a, is a big thing, especially coming from someone like her. And so I was really pleased that this had fulfilled her what she wanted for the book, because yeah, I can't imagine what it's like to be a writer, putting your work out there and then letting someone else come along and potentially deface it. Because I do think one of the things that I noticed is how respectful you were of the text, actually. You, you can tell that you'd read carefully and not only took what the words are saying, but what lies behind the words as well. Oh, well, that's really kind of you to say that because probably we're not always conscious of what, you know, how the work emerges. I I wouldn't claim to ever have any big brand ideas. I think most of what I do is very simple and literally interpreting, obviously, the text. But when you've got such a powerful text, you know, it doesn't take much to then very simply translate that into an image and also I was very lucky I had some fantastic models who every project I've ever done I I take time to go and try and find models try and find the right the landscape that's true to that particular story because for me if it's already there there's no point making it up and so I did have really good models both for Perseus and Medusa and also their canine companions Um, so well, I'm very happy if, if you feel that it, it does yes. um, reflect well her, her text. Should we talk about some of the illustrations in the book? It'll give us a chance to exemplify really what, what we've been talking about so far. And so one of the first things I wondered if we could talk about were 
some of the very stormy scenes, which are very dramatic and they're really full of movement. I love the fact that they look so Greek as well. Well, I'm amazed that you're saying it looks really Greek and I'm really happy because <laughs> I just didn't get within a hundred miles of Greece. And I was, that was one thing I was worried about was this, the whole palette that I was using, the look of, of the, the images was going to be quite cold because I do live in the Northern Hemisphere and I'm in the, the North Sea or I'm on the North Atlantic. And I was worried that this wouldn't look Mediterranean enough. But if you think it looks really Greek, then that's fantastic. And that's, I should say it was totally intentional. (laughs) Just to give listeners now an indication, we're looking at pages 48 to 49, which is one of the spreads that shows a storm as it's happening. And we've got the two big hands of Poseidon reaching out from these, the turmoil um, of these waves. And between his thumb and his index finger, I think he has a small boat um, in which we see Medusa. Just tell us a little bit about uh, the composition of this and how you went about making it. Well, it's a very simple, mainly watercolour drawing or painting, which is one of the images which I think arrive quite quickly. Um, I don't know if other artists, illustrators find this, but some images arrive in your head like that and others take a lot of working out. And this for me was something... I just think the, the the power of the imagery just is there in the text already. So all you have to do is is depict it. And I think we did have a conversation about how Poseidon should be represented because he is this hugely menacing presence under the water. And already anyone who's at sea, even for me, crossing on a ferry, you're aware of the enormous power of, of the sea. And especially when you see shipwrecks and you see tsunamis and all of the destruction that that can. So the sea is a a beautiful and destructive entity. And we were saying, well, how do you represent Poseidon? But ultimately, and not in small part because he rapes Medusa, you know, I wanted to keep him as a male persona, but then how do you make hands coming out of the sea not look ridiculous? Uh, I don't know. So he's there in this with his hands. He's there in another uh, spread lying under the water, basically stalking her while she's in her small boats on the surface. And in this spread here, there's a suggestion of a whale and there's the the light coming from behind and this tiny boat with Dinai and Perseus who have been cast adrift. And he is plucking them out of the water to safety. I don't know, it probably does refer back to my work in theatre, my work in puppetry, where you're playing with scale mm-hmm. and a bit like I did a, a little bit, I really enjoyed in Fantastic Beasts, where you've got a huge, um, gigantic leopard, like the, the Nundu. And one of the spreads I most enjoyed doing was that one, where you can, by a simple drawing and playing with a bit of scale, so you've got these tiny wizards, just like here you've got the tiny boat, you can quite easily or simply make a powerful image Mm. but it really is it is quite a simple drawing um wash and and a bit of gouache and a bit of uh not much else really but it's it's quite operatic I feel this you know there's Jesse's writing for me is theatrical and somehow operatic I don't know why I say that but and and this is where even on a you know, not big page, you can make a dramatic statement with a simple drawing. 
Can I ask you, uh, is the artwork itself the same size as the book? No, I don't even work to the right proportions of a book. <laughs> you can ask Stephanie, the art director. <laughs> In fact, yes, all the art directors I've ever worked with would say the same thing. I have a bit of a block when it comes to crop marks, but no, I tend to work always quite a lot bigger mm-hmm. than the size of the the page. I don't. Why do I do that? Um, most of the images for Medusa are probably A2, some are even A1 size. And if I'm doing printing, it it will depend on the size of the plate as well. But largely, I will work larger. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I don't want to put words into your he- head, but for me, bigger means that you've got more movement. Whereas a smaller thing, your movement's much more constricted. And I just wondered whether that was part of it, that, that kinesthetic sense of... Because there's so much movement in this picture. Uh, no, I think you're completely right. I hadn't even thought of that. But yes, obviously, the larger surface you've got to work on, the more freedom you have to have that expression, that drama. And for those ones, it's very... For the ones that, like you're talking about, the storm scenes of which there's two, that is very important. And I think, yes, it would be quite hard to achieve that on a much smaller scale. So these have been shrunk. But again, if you're working a lot larger, you've got to consider what's going to happen when it gets shrunk down to the to the final size. Yeah. You were right to correct me. Obviously, it's not Medusa in this boat, but it sort of mirrors her experience when she has to plead uh, with Poseidon for her life, basically, um, in another part of the story. Um, I did want to talk about you. You, you know, you said that the book hasn't got much colour, but actually it does. <laughs> and another colour that is very strong throughout is red. And it obviously comes at moments of great drama. I'm looking at this page here, um, which is about octopus. A producer in this story is a keen fisherwoman. Her sisters go out uh, during the day. They bring back an octopus for her to eat. But this is such a dramatic uh, spread. It's on top of the text here. It's not devoted entirely to the picture. And we've got this net with these very red octopuses kind of dripping down the page. Tell us a little bit about what was going on here and why you decided you wanted to visualise the octopus as well. I don't know. I came, I suppose I was researching early on imagery and... um, trying to get a feel of the landscape and the environment. Um, Also, I'm very interested in different species of animals and fish. And I knew that the sea was a very important, well, it's almost like a a character in the book, as well as being the kind of environment and the landscape. So right from the beginning, I think I was looking at different species and I came across an image of the way octopuses are, are hung up to dry which I found extremely, it's got a violence to it, I find. And they're very anatomical, or I'm not quite sure what the word is, but because this is obviously for young adults, you know, you're steering a fine line between, you know, what you can show and what you can't show. And even in an adult book, you know, there would be those same sort of limits, I suppose. So for me, this was a very simple way, well, a metaphor, really, for the rape of Medusa, Mm really mm. that's certainly what comes across and also the echoes I mean yes because the red is used for an image later on which follows the rape of Medusa it was uh the the drama that that lends I mean red is a color that I use 
quite a lot. I think it's one of the only colours I, I feel able to use. Uh, so often there's a sort of black, white, red in my work. But um, yeah, that was something that came along as a maybe slightly random idea, but I felt straight away was was going to be suitable for this and serve on, on different levels visually. Can I just ask you, one of the things that you, you seem to do quite a bit is to put words into your images as well. So that one that we've just had a look at, we've got the Greek for octopus in with that image. And there are other pages. I'm going to go to the one of Perseus. Um, I want to pick up one of the images that has, you know, the portraits, the head and shoulders, because it contrasts yes. so strongly with the drama in the stormy scenes. Well, the image of Perseus, when he is being turned to stone, there is obviously this hugely dramatic moment but the drama is actually somebody becoming mute and immobilised, in fact. So there is the opposite, like you're saying, to the storm scenes where it's all movement. Well, this is all stillness as he is gradually transformed mm. to a statue. So this was an, a really nice opportunity to study a wonderful model who came to sit for me. And he has very intense eyes and the problem was actually doing the drawing without making each other laugh because you're staring into each other's eyes like that but there's a description in Jesse's writing how his mouth turns into an O shape but again I didn't want it to be a caricature or comedy either so there's a sight opening of the mouth I think the portrait was indirectly influenced by the, the that beautiful sculpture of the charioteer where his eyes are inlaid. I'm trying to think what the main sculpture is made of, but his eyes certainly have got that inlay. And I think that was maybe the quality that I was, was trying to get at here. And so in fact, it remains a very simple drawing, charcoal on, on brown paper, um, with the eyes slightly highlighted, but not much else. Whereas the background, from the beginning, I envisaged him against the background of Greco-Roman script, which I pulled out from the, the writing. Uh, so you've got Jesse's words there, slightly abstracted, slightly distorted. So you can read it if you want, but it's actually part of a decorative device, really. The other thing that I see in this picture are marks where it looks like somebody's counting off the days, you know, like you would expect to see on a prison wall. Is that like Medusa? She's been on this island for a long time. Yeah, in fact, it's really nice because you're sort of seeing all these things, which I think were there in my head when I was making the work. And definitely that was one of the ideas. There's one where the cave, there's a drawing of her cave where there's a little suggestion also of that marking off of days, which if you were stuck on an island, is probably what you would do. I'm thinking of people who are being held hostage mm -hmm. or who are in confinement or in prison. And although she's not exactly in prison, she's certainly in isolation and I think the whole time that I was working on this, pretty much we had the coronavirus um, which arrived and a lot of people were marking off days. I think maybe that's also what was what was in my head. But the use of writing, I don't know why. I just, I'm, I'm interested in words and I'm interested in languages. So the idea of having words as part of the, the drawing is something that I, I just like. But here there was a discussion around whether this was actual text that had to be read and therefore had to be lifted off to be translated for the different foreign editions, 
or whether it is purely um, a decorative element of the artwork. I think we ended up deciding that it is purely a decorative element, but I think no matter what language you speak, it's always interesting to try and read other languages. So I, I love visual qualities of writing and, and text. Mm-hmm. And this was an idea, well, just playing a little bit with some of that amazing classical lettering you get, you know, engraved into stone. I did want to ask you about one more illustration. It's the one that's being used on the cover of the proof. And it's of the constellation in the sky of Perseus. And he is holding the head of Medusa. Tell us a little bit about, you know, that illustration, which isn't a direct part of the story, and yet it allows us to think about the story in a different way, I think. I'm fascinated with stars, like lots of people, and I don't think I live in the right place to see the Perseus constellation, but I've looked up the different constellations And knowing that there is the Perseus constellation and finding that this also consists, the mini constellation is is the Medusa's head, well, the Gorgon's head. I couldn't help include that. And I think when she's standing on the headland there, she's this young, well, teenage girl. She's experienced all of what she has been through. And then she's looking at her destiny. She's trying to decide, you know, what, what happens now or And the idea that she is unknowingly overshadowed by or looking out at her destiny, which is written in the stars, and then goes on to change that. I just like that. It's a fantastic partnership between the two of you uh, to create this really strong story of Medusa. Uh, I'm going to be putting it into so many people's hands uh, because I think it's a really thrilling book and it's been equally thrilling talking to you today Olivia thank you so much for you know letting us into such a big part of your uh, creative life it's been really nice to be able to relive a bit of that journey of making the book I hope that lots of people will get to enjoy it In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes if you have enjoyed this podcast please do leave a review for us To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.